Uh, I've got a couple of, I'm going to call them heavy subjects uh, before we get started on the message. Uh, I was sitting there going, do I say it before the service? Do I say it after the service? And I thought, you know, let's just uh, let's make it known early. So some of you, um, some of you have met Bina. Uh, she's been coming here for the last couple of months. And uh, I don't know if I've read her story and had some pretty fun conversations with her. Well, Bina on, uh, Bina's in the back there. We're going to embarrass her. Go ahead and raise your hand, Bina. Sorry, she's in the very back. Uh, she goes in for lung surgery on February 22nd of uh, this month um, and to remove a cancer uh, from one of the lobes, is my understanding. And I'd like some of us to take it upon ourselves to pray for her daily. Uh, we've got some prayer warriors in the congregation. And we also have some very service-minded people in the congregation that uh, can help out through the healing process as well. So um, make that a point to visit with her today about it. And it's, it's uh, irony, maybe is not the right word, but uh, we have a, my dad and I have a contractor that we've worked with that's pretty close friends with um, a family here at church, and he was just diagnosed with uh, lung cancer as well, and he's 44, 43, somewhere in there. Healthy guy, uh, two boys, and when I heard about it, it was just my dad and I were talking about it after at a, at a work meeting, and I just was dumbfounded that someone that's healthy and young can just get a sentence like that. And you know, they don't. I don't. I don't know all the details other than it's just heard at the beginning uh, that he just mentioned this to my dad, and I prayed. Um, I think it was last night that God would give me the boldness um, to visit with him. And I don't know where he's at with the Lord. I know that they, uh, they believe in God. I don't know where he's at with the Lord, though. So um, I asked God to give me the boldness and the opportunity to share with him the gospel and to, to sit with him and visit uh, because um, it's got to be a tough bit of news at a young age, uh, at any age, really, but at a young age as well, to, with, with kids still at home. So anyway, we're going to be praying for those situations. Uh, I fail sharing his name because I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I have permission to do that. So, but I do know I have permission from Bina uh, to request prayer. So, let's go ahead and make put that on our hearts over the next month or so, or the next three weeks before she goes into surgery. Uh, I decided to jump back into a science fact, and just for the day, I have a friend who passed away about 15 years ago or 12 years ago or so, and he and I used to talk a lot about Bible, and we talk about God, and, and uh, he said to me one time that the reason the earth is having such a hard time just in general is because of the sin of mankind, and he used the scripture, uh, and we were actually talking about uh, honeybees, and there's one article I read that said that bee numbers have been declining for several years as a result of factors such as deadly mites and habit destruction, climate change. I mean, there's all these reasons as why they say the honeybee population has gone down. And as we were talking about it, he says, uh, and I've been reading this, again, the last 17 years I've been reading about the honeybee population ever since I got interested in this sort of thing. And he would go to the book of Genesis 
to make his point that the reason the honeybee population is falling is because of mankind. And if you go to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And the way he read that, he was saying the reason why the earth is struggling in certain things is because mankind has corrupted their ways, and therefore the earth's honeybee population and tsunamis and earthquakes and things like that uh, happen. And I, fi I found that interesting, and to be quite frank, if you want to know where I stand, I agree with him. Uh, I'm not saying it's gospel, I'm just saying I agree with him. It makes sense to me. Uh, commercial bee po uh, operations are essential to agricultural production in the U.S. This is why this is such a big deal uh, with the honeybee population. The agricultural production in the U.S. pollinating $15 billion worth of food crops every year. Honeybee colonies are moved around the country to pollinate important agricultural crops, such as if you like these following food sources uh, or food items, this should be important to you. Uh, almonds or almonds, blueberries, apples, minimizing their losses and ensuring the health of both commercial and backyard colonies is critical to food production and supply. Pollination is required by more than 1,000 different plants, including those farmed for other things such as foods, spices, beverages, medicines, fibers, uh, we would be deprived of delectable delicacies such as chocolate, coffee, peaches, almonds, tomatoes, blueberries, strawberries, apples, pumpkins, melons, vanilla, and a plethora of other fruits, nuts, and vegetables. So, and we're going to read something in Scripture later on that I think also ties into this in the book of Leviticus, but we'll, I'll touch on that later. So, fun fact, bees are important if you like chocolate and coffee, which if you don't, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, my dad likes hot chocolate, but not coffee, so he gets a pass. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, uh, we've been walking together as a church body through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've started with these eight Beatitudes. And as I'm reading these eight Beatitudes, um, a thought came to me uh, recently as I was reading through them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I read through these Beatitudes, I don't know what happened over the last couple of weeks, but it's the first time in a long time that I have genuinely focused on every single one of these and, and are seeking the blessings that God has to offer when we pursue these attributes, when we pursue them, when we think about them, when we administer them to our lives and the gifts and the blessings that come from that 
it, it's just powerful. And that thought process has led me to this study today. And it's, uh, it's how the Beatitudes are related to a very consistent message throughout Scripture. It's a message that starts back in Genesis. It's a message that is at the very beginning. It's, it, it's through the Scriptures. And the, in the passage that I'm going to look at to make my point is in Genesis chapter 4. And many of us know the story of Cain and Abel. And Eve gave birth. The Lord gave her a man and gave her Cain. And uh, after that... Um, she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. And in, chapter, in verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, <clears throat> Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Who has the NIV, Andy? Ryan, what does it say there when it talks about regard? Um, verse 4, second half. The Lord looked with favor. So if you have the NIV, the, the ESV reads, and the Lord uh, had regard. And in verse 6, it says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? And here is the, the verse that I want you to focus on. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. If you notice, I emphasize the word if. God says, if you do well, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. So I see this consistency in Scripture, this concept that we have from Genesis chapter 2 all the way through the New Testament that boils down to four or five words. You reap what you sow. If you plant a corn kernel, you will receive a corn stalk. If you plant an apple seed, you will see later an apple tree come up. You cannot plant an apple seed and expect a watermelon plant. Nobody, everybody recognizes and acknowledges this. And if we look throughout Scripture, I want to look at several different passages here to kind of make the point of what I'm saying, and believe me, believe me, I'm begging you to stay with me this whole message because this 100% applies to the Beatitudes. This 100% applies to the blessings that God promises. So this first one is we see this concept of you reap what you sow. Look at Deuteronomy. Many of you have, who have been coming to church here for a while or have known me for a while I have preached on this passage, Deuteronomy 28, for I don't know, how many times have I referenced it in my sermons? The, con the context is, is Moses is, is talking to the nation of Israel, or God is talking to Moses, and he's passing this along, 
And he says, in, in Deuteronomy 28, the, the title of Deuteronomy 28 is Blessings for Obedience, the first 14 verses. And then the next 100 verses or 60 verses is Curses for Disobedience. So obedience or disobedience is sown, and blessings and curses are what you reap. You reap what you sow. So he's saying obedience is what they were sowing, and the blessings is what they reaped. And then he goes on to say, if you disobey, you're reaping disobedience, or you're sowing disobedience, rather, but you're reaping curses. And so we see this in Scripture, the blessings for obedience, the curses for dis- disobedience. But the, the whole point is not the blessings and the curses. The point is you reap what you sow. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have the story of David and Bathsheba. And David and Bathsheba, they committed a, uh, an infraction upon God's law and an infraction upon hum- human law and moral law. And they, that's what they sowed. What they reaped from that particular instance was the death of the son born that was due to an affair out of wedlock. If you look at Leviticus chapter 26, believe me guys, this is a very positive sermon. I know it doesn't sound like it, but it is. Okay, Leviticus 26. I'm actually going to read this one, uh, the first 22 verses. So, You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you, again, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield its fruit. Their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall. Before you by the sword, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you shall not be their slaves, and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So the beginning of that is verse 3, if you walk in my statutes, if you sow obedience, these are the things I will give you, your rains in their season. It was blessings that God was going to give the nation of Israel through their obedience. And then the next passage says, but, however, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease, and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And he goes on to talk about the the curses that come from the disobedience, from not following the statutes of God. The reason I said I was going to mention this thing about the honeybees and the the earth not doing well because of man's disobedience is 
uh, I thought this when I read this verse, and I've never read this in the ESV before, but he says, I will make you, I will visit you with panic with wasting disease. So anybody that hunts knows that if you harvest an animal in certain units within the state of Colorado, you have to take the head down to the, the, the Division of Wildlife, and they will test it for chronic wasting disease. So I read that, and I was like, well, darn it, Colorado, start voting right, you know? <laughs> stop, stop saying it's okay to do evil and evil good. I mean, that's, stop saying that, and we would stop hurting these poor elk and deer. That was my thought, but anyway, that's a segue. So, Leviticus 26, I read that. You get the concept. You reap what you sow. You get what you put in. You earn what you or, or, or uh, what, you, what you're owed, I suppose. In Proverbs chapter uh, 20, it says in verse 4, it says, The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. So the result of the sluggard, uh, him not working, not plowing in the autumn, the result is he will seek at harvest and have nothing. He has reaped what he has not sown. Or, if he sowed, he would reap. And then if you go forward, uh, chapter 22, verse 8, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fell. So, when I look at these passages, you go to Galatians, that's Old Testament, Nate. Well, what about the New Testament? Does the New Testament talk about reaping and sowing? So if you go to Galatians chapter 6, verse uh, 7 and 8, Let's start in 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Flip back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 6 starts out by saying the point is this, whoever sows sparingly, the context here is giving your means to the church and helping the brothers and sisters within the church out. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Your reaping is, in, is, in, is kind of parallel to your sowing. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. This is, these are a few of thousands of examples in Scripture of the, the concept that we reap what we sow. And there are millions of examples, millions of examples in the world that we can look and say, a tomato plant, a, uh, a cantaloupe, uh, a zucchini, um, our children. We are reaping what we're sowing. Do not be surprised at the end, because you shouldn't be, because the Bible is very clear from Genesis to the very end, you reap what you sow. I want to make a side note to this. Some may be thinking, hearing the message, Ryan's looking at me intently, so I know he's paying attention, like he always does, and you're thinking, exactly, right here in scripture, black and white. We've got example after example and story after story of reaping and sowing. But over the last 20 years, I have studied and I've 
debated and discussed and enjoyed conversation with people that are maybe on a different mindset than this concept. And they believe that we are simply instruments doing what God's will is, despite maybe what our decisions are. Without choice, we're kind of doing what God is telling us to do. And I want to I consider these two statements. First statement, he is in charge of everything. And his desire in our lives will be done despite us. And the second statement is we are in charge of our own lives and everything is a result of us doing. And I want to see if I can find maybe a balance between the two extremes. The balance is we are the conduit. We are the conduit through which God works. We are the hands. We are the feet. He works through us. We reap good things through His power and we see negative things by not tapping into His power. And so God gives us this power for us to use so that we will reap what we want to reap. I'm going to give you a story, an example, that you can hopefully understand it better. February or January 30, is it 31st? Is there 31 days in January? January 31st was on Tuesday. Monday afternoon, the kids were like, yeah, last day of duck and goose season, we've got to go hunting tomorrow. I said, I planned on it, I'm not working tomorrow, let's go get up early and go duck and goose hunting. So we went duck and goose hunting at 6 in the morning, we left the house, because Grant said, we have to be there 30 minutes before shooting light, get all set up. So it's 8 degrees outside, we walk across this little creek, I wore muck boots, because now that the kids are old enough, they wear waders so they can set the decoys, I fall through the ice. And I've got water that goes down in my boots. It's eight degrees outside. I've got ice water in my boots, but I know I've got to just still kind of deal with it. I did sit in the truck a little while and warm up. But we set these decoys. The ducks aren't flying. So let's go to the other side of the property and see if there's ducks flying over there. So we're walking or we're driving over to this about a mile and a half away, and there's a bunch of geese on the pond. And Jonah says, Dad, can I shoot a goose? I said, I don't know, can you? He says, I can try. So he jumps out. Shoots a goose, the goose lands on the ice. And I'm excited for him. But it lands on the ice, and our dog cannot swim and get up on the ice because it's dangerous and your dog can be in trouble. So what do we do? Well, we find a boat on this lake. It's not our boat, but it's a boat. So we grab the boat, we throw it in the back of the Jeep or the truck, but there's no oar. And so Ridge looks around and he sees this oar and he grabs this piece of wood, this tree. Had, had somehow managed to break apart, so he grabs this piece of wood that acted as an oar, and Grant and Jonas get in the boat, and they take this God-made oar, and they go get the goose, which our chocolate lab faithfully sat on her behind and watched them retrieve the goose, and they brought the goose back. And the point of this story is we've got to look at this and go, how does this work where God is all-powerful and yet we are a part of the equation. So who made the lead? Who made the goose? Who made gunpowder? Who made metal to fashion a shotgun? Who made the, who gave the ability for hand-eye coordination? Who did all that? God did. God did, right? God made all of these things. He made the wood for the boat and the oar and the shotgun shells and all this stuff. He made, we fashioned it, 
But who made the decision to get up at 5.30 in the morning and leave at 6 and go in 8 degree weather? And we did. We were a part of God's plan. We used the power which He gives us to fulfill what we wanted. We reaped what we sowed. I don't know if that makes sense to me, but when I was putting the story together, it made perfect sense. We reaped what we sowed. We worked in conjunction with God for our power. And the reason this message is important today is because it has everything absolutely to do with the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see story after story after story, an example of humankind reaping what they put in, reaping what they sown. And God even says, you're going to get this if you do this. You're going to get this if you do this. It's a cause and effect. It cannot be denied. It cannot be denied in Scripture. If you deny it in Scripture, you're not being honest with Scripture. And with that, I can't help you. You have to look at the Word of God and go, oh, okay, it says that if I plant a harvest, I'm going to reap the harvest. If I don't plant the harvest, I'm not going to reap the harvest. That's what the Scriptures teach. And when we have the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, it says, He opened His mouth and He taught them. And He says to them, you want the kingdom of heaven? Be poor in the Spirit. Get to a point where you're so low that the only place that you can look up is at God. That's the only place you can go if you want the kingdom of heaven. is to recognize your own failures as a human being that you cannot have the kingdom of heaven without me. That's what it says. You want to reap, or you want to reap the kingdom of heaven? Be poor in spirit. And then he goes on to say, you want to be comforted? Do you want to be comforted? Then mourn. Hit a place where you say, God, I am so sorry for my sin. I have remorse that I put you on the cross. And have a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That's what the beatitude is saying. You want to be comforted? Then mourn. He goes on to say, in verse 3, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You want to inherit the earth? then be gentle and be humble. He's not saying be weak. For those of you who didn't hear the message two weeks ago about weak is not meek, I encourage you to listen to it. You want to inherit the earth? Be gentle. Be humble. You don't want to inherit the earth? Be uh, prideful? Arrogant? Brash? Not gentle? You reap what you sow. These passages in a Sermon on the Mount are so applicable to you. They're so applicable to every single human sitting on a pew this morning. They're applicable to every human on the face of the earth. You want to be filled? Then hunger and thirst for righteousness that is desperate and palpable. It's not like, I'm kind of hungry. I haven't eaten in two hours. Like Justin said, it's, I am so desperate for God. Then you will be filled. The promises that we have here, the world, guys, the world is missing out on the blessings that God has to offer. The church is messing out 
missing out. I was missing out. When I look at these blessings that I'm like, okay, God, I need, to, I need to be poor in spirit. I need to recognize it. I need to mourn. I need to repent. I need to be more gentle. I need to be more humble. And I look at these passages. I need a hunger and thirst for the knowledge of God. And I need a hunger and thirst for wisdom. Like I'm so thirsty and so hungry right now. I have to have it, God. And God says, I will fill you up. That's what he promises. But unfortunately, Christians, a lot of people that love God, they don't hunger and thirst desperately. Guys, I've been there. I'm not condemning anybody. I'm just telling you, I've been in Christ and not hungered and thirst to really understand what does this word say? What does this book say? And then we get into this, this fifth, we're halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, and that's why, you know, I kind of figured, guys, I'm just going to tell you right now, this, this fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive, receive mercy. I think we've been going too fast through the beatitudes. So this mercy one's going to take two weeks. I'm just letting you know. I can't do it in one week. I just can't. I can't look at this, this concept of eleo, which is to have compassion, is what mercy means. I can't look at this beatitude and go, I can speak 40 minutes on this and we can get it. I can't. Because I've got to first look at, I want to be, I want to be, I want to receive mercy. I want compassion. I, because I want to be blessed. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled by God. And so the only way for me to fully understand is to continue to study out this one passage, blessed are the merciful. I'm not going to go backwards like we do, but I am going to go forward and say this is going to take a couple weeks to dissect and look at what is mercy? What is compassion? What is, how does that apply to our lives? That word when it says, blessed are the merciful, I, can, I had to think of who is the perfect example of the king of mercy. It's the creator of mercy. And there's a story that I found in 2 Chronicles. When I looked at this story, it didn't even make sense to me. I'm not going to lie to you. It didn't even, I couldn't comprehend why God, why God would do this. Why God would allow this. And I want you to put yourself in Manasseh's shoes. I don't want you to put yourself in God's shoes yet. But for those of you that struggle with the acceptance of mercy the acceptance of grace, the acceptance of forgiveness for things that you've done, thought, witnessed, who you are today, if you struggle with that, look at Manasseh. This story in 2 Chronicles 33, it's so important, we're going to read the entire text. And I want you to picture yourself as Manasseh here, 
Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, 67 years old when he finally finished. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He must have stolen from the local city market. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Verse 3, for he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down and he erected altars to the Baals. Baals are false gods, breaking the first commandment. And made Asheroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever. Verse 5, and he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hanam and used fortune. He burned his sons. Child sacrifice. Well, this is gory. This is Bible. This is what Manasseh did. This guy, when it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, he, didn't, he wasn't having impure thoughts. He wasn't having envy. He was murdering his children to false gods. I, I, can't, even, I, I can't even fathom that. It doesn't even make any sense to me. But that's what he was doing. He dealt with mediums and with... Uh, Necromancers? Is that how you say that? Necromancers? Necromancers? What is that? I, I didn't. I should have looked it up, and I did. I slipped. Oh, okay. People that communicate ne, necromancers. 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 Okay, I'll get it. Necromancers. All right. He did much in the evil of the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger, provoking the Lord to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers. If only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, and all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led... Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. This guy was a bad, bad, bad king. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, he was sowing evil. And this is what he reaped. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, we are about to see the, 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 an example, not even the extent, but the example of the mercy and the compassion of God. This evil human being that was sacrificing his own children and worshiping false gods, it said, and when he was in distress, after he got what he deserved, what was owed him, 
When he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. He humbled himself before God. And what did he reap from his humility? Mercy. He was restored. He was restored back to kingship. You think you've done some bad things? What you've done doesn't even hold a candle to what Manasseh did. You can't even put it in the same light. And yet, and yet God showed him mercy. Was it contingent upon his humility? Would you say yes or no? Absolutely. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty. Brothers and sisters, there are stories after stories after stories of God's mercy in the Old Testament. There are stories after stories after stories of the mercy of Jesus in the New Testament. In the book of John, many of you have, all of you have heard this story, this this situation that Jesus dealt with in John chapter 8. And I'm going to go forward a verse in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, this is what God spoke to Moses. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The punishment for adultery was the death penalty. Stoning, I believe, was the most common form of the punishment. And in John chapter 8, verse 50, uh, sorry, verse 1, it says 53 and then 1, they went to each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. And last I heard, it takes two to tango, okay? But they brought the woman down. Uh, Who knows where the man is? Uh, The woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? I mean, it's very clearly in Scripture, if this woman is caught in the act of adultery, both her and the adulterer, the adulterer and the adulteress, should be stoned to death. We don't have the man here, but we have the woman. So Jesus, what do you say? It's clear in the law of Moses And you recognize that the one true God, the God of Israel, is the one who gave this law. 
So she should be stoned. Don't you think, Jesus, we're going to infer that she should be killed? What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus, the most merciful example we have of anybody that's walked the earth, he stood up and he said to them, after he had wrote on the ground, was something we don't know what he wrote. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? I think NIV says, Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. I struggle with mercy. I struggle with compassion. Pull up your bootstraps, figure it out. I'm not going to lie to you. I'll confess right to you. But as I read this scripture, and I recognize that the God of all creation, and that Jesus, the most perfect example of how we live, says, Nate, you want to be blessed? Show mercy. Show compassion. And I'm going to tell you, it's, I'm on the, on the verge of tears in joy of thinking that God in His Wisdom can put down eight beatitudes to say, Nate, you want to live a happy life? You want to live a happy life? Then be poor in spirit. You want to live a happy life? Then mourn. You want to live a happy life? Then be meek. You want to live a happy life? Then seek the kingdom of God and hunger and thirst for it. You want to live a happy life? Then be merciful. And I've been studying this, this, these Beatitudes since we even started the concept of going through them. And I'm seeing God give me opportunity after opportunity to be merciful, to have compassion. A few days ago or last week, I left the church building. Might have been two weeks ago as I was pondering because Justin preached on hunger and thirst and I knew I'd be preaching on mercy. And we had our, we had our Bible study that Donaldo uh, led. We missed Wednesday and I was bummed. I was feeling about that big, not feeling well. But the week before, led a Bible study and I left the church building and I was driving separately because I got home late from work so we just met here. And I was down here on 16th or 15th, whatever it is. And I'm getting ready to turn right on North Avenue. And there was a vehicle in the left lane, trying to turn right. Are you following me? It's not a one-way. And I thought, this person's got some issues. So I stand, I, I, I pull back a little bit. I, I don't come all the way in there. And this was at, when did we get done with the study? 8 o'clock? 8.30? And he, he turns from the oncoming traffic, turns right on north. And I went, i got to follow him. So, I follow him. 
and he's running over the curb. He's up on the median. He's back down on the curb. He's in every single lane. And I, Matt Cook, some police officer, I called 911. Said, hey, I'm behind some guy. He's drunker and cooter. We got to get him pulled over. He's in trouble. He is going to kill somebody. He's driving all over the road. He's bumping up on the curb. I said, this guy is a mess. He's going to hurt somebody. She said, where are you? I said, I'm on North Avenue. I'm turning left on 12th right now. So I follow him on 12th. And he almost cuts somebody off and gets hit and kills him or whatever, kills himself. So I follow behind him. He's not speeding. He's doing about 25 and a 35. So I'm following him. I'm on the phone the whole time. And, and I said, yeah, we're on 12th. We just passed Gunnison. We just passed Grand. Oh, okay. We just turned right on Pitkin. Or I'm sorry, Ute. We turned right on Ute. And I'm still following him. We're getting ready to come in front of the police station. You could just get somebody out there and pull them over. She's like, what's your name and number? I said, Nate Porter, here's my phone number. I said, okay, thanks. We're going to send somebody out. I said, okay, he's in a red Dodge. It says U.S. Navy SEALs on the back of the license plate. It's a newer Dodge. And I was just going to keep going straight and go home. And God said, follow him. Keep following him. The cops aren't here yet. So I pull over in the left lane, and I turn right or left going up to Orchard. We cross over the bridge right across from Hall's old wood shop the VFW. He makes an illegal U-turn, goes in the VFW to have another drink. So I sit there and I park. A couple spots over for him and I thought, oh, I, gotta, I gotta do something. I can't just sit here. And he's gonna get in the car in about an hour after a couple more cocktails. He's struggling walking. So I got out of my car and he got out of his truck. I got out of my truck. He's walking into it. I said, hey, excuse me, sir. And it's dark, you know, it's dark in the parking lot and he turns around, hey, what? I said, I need to talk to you. What, what do you want? And I said, I can't let you drive anymore. I said, you are drunk as a skunk. And I followed you from 17th and North Avenue. He said, you followed me? Kind of aggressive. I said, yeah, I followed you. I said, you're driving all over the curb, and you're going to hurt somebody or kill somebody or yourself. Oh, I'm sorry. And I said, dude, I'm worried about you. I said, I'm worried you're going to get killed, you're going to kill somebody else. Now, at one point, I would have wanted to tackle him and smack him in the head or something, but I just said, I've got to show compassion on this man because something's wrong. And I said, look, I'm not going to let you get in your vehicle again. I'm not going to let you drive. I said, give me your keys. I'll give you a ride home. I don't care where you live. I'll give you a ride home right now. I'll pick you up in the morning. I'll take you to breakfast. I said, just let me take you home right now. And he goes, well, I'm not ready to go home. I said, give me your keys. He says, well, I don't know where my keys are. I said, you were just driving. He goes, well, they're in the car somewhere, and it's one of those key fobs. Okay. God, what am I doing here? I said, okay, I'm going to take your vehicle. You can have it. It's a nice Dodge. I was like, we, we got another one coming up driving here soon. He'd never know. He sold it to me. He signed this title right here. Here's 500 bucks, you know. I don't know. I said, uh, okay, I'm going to take your car, and I'll pick you up in the morning. Um, what's your phone number? So I typed in about six different phone numbers because they were transposed. And the guy was wasted. I don't know how he was walking. Transposed numbers. So his wallet's sitting there, and I just grab his wallet. And he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, Taking a picture of your license so I know who I'm talking to. Well, I told you who you're talking to. I said, I know, but I can't understand you that well. So I took a picture of his license. I got it right in my phone. Here's a picture of his license. And he went back in the bar after we talked for a while. 
And I thought, I can't leave the car here because I can't lock it because you have to break the window to get in. I don't know where his keys are. So I drove across the street. And Brenda calls me. She's like, what are you doing? I said, I don't know what I'm doing, honey. I'm driving this guy's truck. I don't know who he is. So I pull over behind this, the, the high desert surveying place. I leave his truck there. Well, in the meantime, like, I wonder what he's got in here. So I was looking around to make sure it wasn't drugs. You know, I was going to throw those away too. And I was looking for a brief, briefcase of money. And so I'm walking around, and his, his truck's full of clothes. And I, it didn't smell bad, but they're empty bottles of liquor. And in the driver's side back door was a Bible tucked in the side of his door. And I thought, this, this poor man, but for the grace of God go I. But for the grace of God, go I. So the next day, he calls me up at set. I don't know how he got up this early. It's like seven o'clock. He's like, "Hey, who is this?" He texted me. I said, "This is the guy that kept you from killing somebody last night." I got your truck. He goes, "Well, I need my truck. I need you to bring it to me." I said, "I'm not bringing your truck. The truck is behind. I does it surveying on VFW. Um, if you go to church anywhere, I notice the Bible in your truck." He says, "Yeah, I've been looking every Sunday." For a church. And <laughs> then he texted back. Do you know any single women? The last 20 have just been after my insurance money. So, oh my gosh, this is going to be so much work for <laughs> this guy. <laughs> there was a time when I would look at that man and think, what a worthless pile of trash. You notice God still requires accountability. But he also says, you want to be blessed, have compassion on the fact that that man is lost. He's lost. Have mercy on him. Doesn't mean you don't hold him accountable because you reap what you sow. Go and sin no more, woman. But have compassion. That's the blessing that God is offering us. And the King of Glory, which we sang about this morning, is saying, I've got compassion for you. I've got mercy. I've got mercy for you. Come, come join me. Guys, do me a favor and act like you didn't hear the story if I ever get Stephen to show up to church here. Because I'll be calling him and we'll be talking again. I told my father-in-law this morning, I'll run into him again. I'll run into him again. Not at VFW, but I'll run into him again. Next week we're going to talk, I hope you're here, we're going to be talking about, okay, God did it, Jesus did it, how do I do it? It doesn't just have to be some drunk guy that shouldn't be driving. How do I have mercy? How do I receive mercy from God? Please keep Bina in your prayers uh, all this week. Visit with her uh, after church today. Um, God knows who the other gentleman is that's uh, going to be up for a battle with lung cancer. Keep, God knows who you're talking about. Pray for him as well. And uh, let's enjoy some fellowship today.
Jared, I, you have communion, Zach?